Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about Oxio Health, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama. Welcome to Healthcare 2030. My name is Noel Guillama, and I am chairman and CEO of Oxio Healthcare Incorporated, a Florida-based healthcare platform company that combines services and technology to advance the care of patients. I'd like to introduce Carl Larson, the COO of Oxio Health. Well, hello, Noel. It was uh, good to be here. This is uh, an exciting podcast. I'm looking forward to this one. This is uh, podcast number 22, and our subject is real estate and its place in the healthcare delivery. For a, a company and a group that has uh, been advocating the use, in particular, of technology in healthcare, I think some of our listeners are going to be surprised in the subject of, of, of this podcast. And I think that the, the issue is it, it, it shocks me, it certainly surprises me, that people don't realize that at the end of the day, most of healthcare is about physical delivery. And, totally. You know, we have 5,000 hospitals in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have plus or minus a million physicians in the United States. And overwhelmingly, uh, you know, sort of pre-pandemic and even post-pandemic, it's gonna be provided in physical locations, whether they are hospitals, outpatient surgery facilities, um, uh, in you know, pra medical practices, or what they call ambulatory centers. Right. Um, so it's hard for some people to understand sort of the physicality of, 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 of healthcare. But before we get dead too deep in that, uh, we just released a, uh, a blog, and I think the information is really relevant to this conversation where we're talking about the challenges that physicians have been placing. The last few blogs have been about primary care in particularly. And the, recently, the American Medical Association put out a report that said that for the first time in history, less than 50% of physicians were practicing uh, in a private practice. The number was down from 54% in 2018. And even the, you know, the survey was done in 2020, don't know the exact time, but we have not seen the whole ramification of the pandemic. So um, mm -hmm. it, it is shocking. And we believe that that trend is gonna accelerate sort of during the pandemic and sort of post pandemic uh, for for a myriad of reasons, including what we talked about before, was the reduced reimbursement, net reimbursement to physicians, the cost of operating uh, a practice, by the way, including real estate, personnel cost, um, and, and frankly, what has been a sort of surprise for the last decade has been technology costs, how much technology the doctors had to put in, and, and not just pay for the technology, but pay for the training, the retraining, mm -hmm. and maintaining of that. And uh, because the government has continually updated the the requirements, is going from one one version of a technology to another version to another version. It's not like you know it's not static, and and at least it's going to change at least in the next twenty four months again. Well, and as we discussed uh, previously, also those technology changes that were mandated by the government have not really improved life for the 
physician, but have really created more work in many ways for the physician. So um, this is technology serving technology, not technology serving man so much. So that, You're right. Um, and the last point I'll make about that AMA survey um, was uh, that it was talking about that most of these physicians are literally employees and only about 40% own any interest in the practice. Um, so it's really a, a shocking number, and the survey originally was for 2,500 physicians. So it was a pretty good uh, sampling of it. Um, and, and, and lastly, it said that 70% of the physicians that were surveyed um, were looking at uh, changing employers, and uh, a little bit over 25% were talking about actually retiring. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to the challenges that, are, that physicians have been, have been having uh, in healthcare, and I think we could talk about now. We'll talk about real estate and the impact of it. Because uh, let me give you some some statistics that are really interesting. Is the average physician, uh, at least in the state of Florida, has about two thousand square feet. They have about two point seven employees per physician, um, and they spend four thousand dollars or more just with the physical real estate. Mm-hmm. That doesn't include the operations of the real estate, whether it's you know electricity, cleaning, maintenance. Um, and it, it becomes really, really expensive, especially when you have that downward trajectory on reimbursements. So what happens in normal industries is industries become more efficient. They use more automation, robots. Um, they they literally find ways to save money. The problem is the physician doesn't have any that much that much there's, capacity. There's no elasticity to there's the, no elasticity uh, because no. you can't really you know telemedicine, which is sort of a thing that we've talked about before provided some value, um, certainly pre-pandemic, the number was maybe one or 2% of all medical encounters were done um, in telemedicine. And uh, the, the, you know, we know now that post-pandemic, uh, the number, or during the pandemic, the number went up to about 70%, um, but now the number's down probably somewhere in the teens. And I don't. I think it'll probably go down to maybe five or six percent. So you can't say that that technology is going to change the physicality of real estate. No. Um, we think that that remote care is going to play a big role for sure, but that's going to be a long trajectory. That's going to be a decade, if not longer, when when you're using now the combination of telemedicine, home-based IoT devices, and sort of interaction and aggregating that data. Um, so at that time, we may need less square footage per physician, less square footage per patient. But that's going to be a really slow trend. It's, I mean, going to it's be an exciting trend, but it's going yeah. to be a slow trend. Well, it is going to be a slow trend for a lot of reasons. But I, I wanted to add one other one other issue that I think uh, physicians are facing in addition to the reduced uh, reimbursements. And that's a reduced throughput. Um, you know, the, the quarantine, the lockdown, uh, mandated uh, spacing for individuals in the waiting room. A lot of people had to wait in their car to be called in, and uh, they could not see the number of patients that they normally would, and therefore their their reimbursement was further affected because they did not have the number of patients in a in a given period. So um, they've, they really got a double, they got a double hit. Um, and, and you're right. The other problem that I think we're going to see, and one of the reasons for some extended period for the the IOT devices to catch up is we need clinical data. We need doctors need clinical data. We need we don't have that uh, in very many of those IOT devices. So we've got a long way to go with standards, a long way to go with FDA approvals, and 
that's going to take that's going to take time because a doctor, most doctors that I've spoken to are reluctant to base a a solid diagnosis on anything other than sound clinical data, and that usually means they've taken the blood pressure or or their staff has taken blood pressure, their the weight, the uh, heart rate, respirations, all of that. They need that, of course, and um, again, going back to what you said previously, uh, so many and so many doctors and so many patients are used to the encounter, and and not uh, and not that remote. So it's going to take a lot of a lot of time, and I think ten years is probably conservative. Well, one of the things that report also talked about is that the number of of physicians working for groups over fifty. Mm-hmm. Had increased dramatically, and 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 what they're trying to do is talk about we we'll talk about scale, right? Um, so that they can compete. So the challenge is those forty nine percent of physicians that are working independently are going to have to not only compete in a reduced reimbursement, they're going to compete with a little bit, a little bit more efficient organizations um, that have rich, you know, sort of critical mass, right? So I I see this trend about the independent physician continuing to shrink, and in 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 our blog we predicted that probably. The, the number is likely going to be no more than 25% by the end of the decade. And I think, again, part of the challenge is real estate because real estate continues to increase in cost um, and continues to increase in, in maintenance and continues to increase in every measurable way along with personnel. So the two things that you could change a little bit uh, in that sort of FF&E, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the furniture, fixtures, and equipment kind of thing, and right. personnel, right. Um, is by creating more efficiencies, which need more space. So if you can bring the physician's, you know, utilization of space from 2,000 square feet right. to 1,500, which you could do it if you bring 10 physicians together, uh, could be material. And if you can reduce, because of shared services and personnel, the number of, of, of employees a physician needs from 2.7 to 2, now you're becoming much more efficient because you can't you can't really see any more patients at the end of the day. Tip, the physicians in Florida, mm-hmm. typical physician will see thirty patients. You, you cannot spend any you cannot see any more patients because you spend any more time. And sadly, because of technology, including EMR, for example, is a doctor is spending a material amount of time uh, in documenting those office visits. Yes. And 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 in particularly Medicare, but also many insurance companies. Are creating higher reporting requirements again more time for the physician to be working no, that's absolutely so, right you know, real estate becomes really really important and i think that we're going to see emerging models where there's much more shared office spaces uh medical office spaces shared resources um and frankly extending the the range of office times because a typical physician that i'm aware of i've run a lot of practices uh will run a practice maybe eight o'clock uh most of the time, closer to nine o'clock, they usually take time for lunch, uh, a little bit anyway. And very few physicians open past six o'clock. Right. I, I don't know many at all. Um, so well, it makes for a long day. It, it's a very long day for them, but you're also now taking that real estate that's available twenty four hours a day, oh, sure. and you're yeah. only using it for eight or ten, even eight hours a day at the most. Right. So what I think is going to happen is. Along with the reducing the footprint of the real estate for the for the physician, and reducing the personnel needs, I think you're going to also going to expand the hours. So I think yeah. that you're going to see environments, organizations, smart organizations, are maybe uh, creating almost like double shifts or two shifts coming in. Right. So you may have a physician that starts at seven or eight o'clock in the morning, 
and and then you have another one they come in at three or four o'clock in the morning and expand the hours or in the know, maybe till nine o'clock like, so that well, i mean you've got you've got you know, your your point is exactly that you know in a week you've got 168 hours you've paid for that square footage for 168 hours and you only use it for maybe 60. Um, that's not even half utilization but here in Florida, we also have, and, and I think Texas and a couple of other states, we also have the opportunity for a physician to leverage themselves uh, by utilizing uh, a nurse practitioner or uh, a, a physician assistant that can practice under their supervision and even in, a, in another location. So um, there is that opportunity for a physician to get a little bit more uh, ground, if you will, a little bit more return on their investment um, on on their on their medical office building space. But uh, that's that's I think we're going to see that increase also. I, I think you're right. I think you're also going to see um, a lot more uh, uh, collaboration where you bring in primary care specialists and you do uh, also elective cares and and even you know wellness care. So you end up having much more of a uh, a, a wellness center that includes primary care physicians, especially physicians, uh, elective care, maybe plastic surgery, dermatology in, mm -hmm. in some cases, um, and uh, other things, other modalities. Right. Uh, they could be everything from, frankly, acupuncture to uh, uh, yoga, mm -hmm. uh, meditation, all of these things that are be put together right. so that the patients go to a one-stop. Um, and especially yeah. when you when you start thinking about, you know, sort of a green policy, uh, one of the things that can be done is a patient go to one location instead of going to five or 10 or 15 locations. And if you add to that, a really interesting thing, uh, if you add to that a, a dispensary or a pharmacy that's owned by those doctors, yeah. uh, at least in Florida, you can do that very easily, then the patient doesn't even have to go out there and go to the pharmacy and pick it up. They literally walk out with the, 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 the top 200 medications they, a doctor uses. And I'll tell you that most doctors don't even use 200. The, the, the reality is most doctors use 30 or 40. Right. Uh, and particularly when you get to the specialists like cardiologists and things like that. Um, so they would walk out the door. Um, so I think there's going to be much more of a destination. And I think that one of the things we could talk about later is sort of the, the old-fashioned medical office building. Uh, and how that came about and how hospitals right. uh, created huge campuses in five, seven, seven, ten, even ten buildings I've seen in a campus mm -hmm. of, 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 of physicians in a medical office building. And the premise of that goes way back, uh, in particularly when those physicians, those primary care, but also specialists, would do the rounds in the hospital. So they, they would start early in the morning at five, seven o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, and go do the rounds and then go to the office and if it were necessary, they'd go back and forth. But very few physicians today do rounds in the office, I mean, in the hospital. Um, and almost no primary care does it. They generally defer to hospital-based physicians and particularly hospitalists uh, that are trained uh, in, in providing care, that, 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 uh, you know, that acute care that patients need. And there are many physicians that if they're part of a large group, that they have a certain identified group of physicians um, that basically are doing the hospital rounds, and most mm -hmm. doctors will not do the hospital rounds. Right. So they literally have doctors, part of their medical group, that go from one hospital to the other. So th there was really a lot of need for having, to being close to the hospitals. Mm -hmm. yep. Today, 
um, because hospital admissions are down, okay, uh, as far as the number of days, so utilization is there because of now the hospitalists and all these models, the doctors don't need to be there. I mean, in, in the medical office building, and we see a trend and we think it will accelerate is to bring them closer to the community. So you're going to have community wellness centers that are going to include the primary care, the specialists that we talked about. Right. And that's really important because I think you also be able to aggregate services so that you have a receptionist that handles more than one doctor or maybe handles more than two doctors, could literally have, have a, a number of doctors. The same thing with phlebotomists and people that work in the office and x-rays. So you're not trying to amortize all of that cost of, of one, two, three, four, five doctors. Um, uh, it, and you start now amortizing out over 30 or 40 doctors, especially when you think about, you know, what could be done in, in almost like a timeshare environment mm -hmm. where doctors could actually um, occupy an office for instead of a whole day or even half a day for literally hours and say, between 9 and 11 o'clock, this doctor's going to practice out of this location. Right. And you'll see his, you know, five to seven patients potentially uh, in that time. And then he'll go to another location. Right. Uh, or they could use it as extensions so that in the old days, if a doctor wanted to expand their practice, they, they're depending on the, the the specialty, if it was primary care, they, they may only need to go 15 or 20 miles and maybe bring in new patients. Right. Because patients didn't want to travel to 15 or 20. Well, patients, Specialists might go to 30 miles. Patients typically won't travel longer than, uh, statistically, don't travel much more than about 20 miles to see their, their physician anyway. So, uh, and and maybe to reflect back on and what you opened with, you know, the um, the, the loss of some of our, our physicians in our communities is going to have, and we will, I think, believe, uh, I believe we'll see a reduction in overall population health for a while. And by these sort of clinics that you've you've described, we can get uh, that community points of care reestablished much more, more quickly and um, and and help to recover some of that that uh, population health because uh, uh, you know, it's uh, it's going to be problematic for us. We're we're trying to reduce healthcare costs, but now we're going to see healthcare increase uh, simply because people can't be seen. Well, one of the things that, that will shock you, not you have we haven't talked about this yet because I just read it before we walked into the the booth here, uh, was that Medicare expenditures for last year were mm -hmm. down about seven percent. Uh, I'm surprised. From, I'm from, surprised it was only for that. 2019. Yeah. Because people are saying, well, you, even with the pandemic, I have to tell you, I thought healthcare costs were going to go through the roof in, in the gross, in the totality. Yeah. And I was sort of scared because I thought that, especially at the beginning, remember when they were talking about there would be tens of millions of people infected. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the if that were to happen, the, the cost would have been you know astronomical. But because it was not as deadly as originally anticipated, uh, and because it was not as 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 powerful um, as originally anticipated, um, the reality is people deferred care, canceled care, delayed they care, they everything they could do. And I am stunned that tell you that the Medicare number uh, was seven percent lower than yeah. than 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 twenty nineteen, which is just insane. But that tells you what you're talking about: that people yeah. have deferred. That the sad part for society and the population at large. Is that in many cases, maybe even most? I'm not a doctor. This this deferment, this delay, this pushing back, may have both 
both physical consequences and financial consequences sure. because things that could have been treated a little bit earlier and caught sooner. Are, now, are now going to have to be caught. In well, and to that point, I recall an article I read back in March, April last year that uh, said that cancer diagnoses were down by 30% from what they were the previous year. That's serious because uh, if cancer is not getting diagnosed, if it's particularly, uh, depending on the type of cancer, could be very, very aggressive, you know, that that means that that care becomes that much more expensive for that individual and for society. So that's a huge issue. And it's not just cancer that that occurs with. So, so back to sort of the real estate component is that it, we look at the trend and seeing it diffused out of the hospitals, mm -hmm. uh, much more into the community, larger groups of doctors getting together and working collaboratively uh, or through organizations done, uh, much more holistic care. So that literally is, is sort of, we brand it as sort of total care. You're not just looking at the medical part, you're looking at the emotional and the spiritual part mm -hmm. of the patient. Um, and, and honestly, every time I walk into a medical office building, they're all the same. Yeah, You know, they've yeah. got a marble lobby, you've got elevator bank right in front of you, and then you've got these corridors generally to the left and to the right, and you know, get usually, you know, brown carpet, you know, some kind of beige walls. You've got, you know, uh, um, uh, the lighting, okay? Uh, the the fluorescent lighting, mm -hmm. uh, they might throw a little bit of spotlight here and there, and you look like you're you're, you're walking down to to you know, to the gallows or something. It's it, it, and I I've, and, and it's floor after floor, building after building. I've been to hundreds of medical office buildings, and yeah, there are exceptions here and there. Some universities do really cool stuff. Um, there's a couple of hospitals in Florida that are very cool stuff. But for the most part, they're they're really places that patients don't want to go. And they all you open the door, and you've got a, a waiting room, and you've got the reception, and you've got the glass doors, and it, we haven't redesigned it in forty years. No. So we're looking at that. We think that what we're going to have is we're going to have much more open areas, much more natural lighting, um, much uh, more sort of conducive to to wellness along with all the other things that we're talking about. Well, I, I totally agree, and I think you, you hit the key point, I think, and that is the focus is on wellness and not just on health care. I mean, wellness takes into account, as we've talked, the the whole person. And, it you know, just looking back at, at the history of, of medical, the medical practice in the United States, we're actually going back to what used to be done back in the 50s. You know, we... We were very decentralized in the practice of medicine back then. Now, at, at, in the 60s and 70s, everybody said, well, we got to centralize. we got to bring, bring the doctors in. We, we tried that for the next 30, 40 years. And now we're decentralizing again, recognizing that um, the doctors being congregated around a hospital does not add to population health because of accessibility and and a lot of other issues that the population now faces in trying to get to see their doctor. So getting the doctor out into the population is a much, much better way to practice wellness for the population. Yeah, and, I, and as we talked about, it, everything was based, around, it was based around the hospitals, and the hospitals mm -hmm. today have less importance. I mean, they, when somebody's really, really sick, obviously hospital's important. Uh, but I think with the advent of uh, or the utilization of remote care, of telemedicine, IoT, we talked about, 
that we're going to catch patients earlier. And I think the, right, right. the whole demographics uh, and, and logistics of healthcare is going to change. A lot of it's going to be about real estate, where the office is located. Right. Well, don't you think that an indication of the need for this decentralization was the advent of the urgent care facilities and the outpatient surgical centers and so on that were spread out away from that centralized hospital? And uh, it made it much easier for, uh, again, for patients to uh, get the specific care they needed or in urgent care, not having to go to an ER, they could see a doctor. That's true. I mean, one of the things that, you know, in many communities, like, you know, literally in our community, but also in big cities, it is very common, at least in Florida, the area that we know very well, is to have literally standalone emergency rooms, Mm -hmm. which sort of doesn't make any sense if you think about it. The idea is that, that a patient instead of going to urgent care uh, or, or driving 10 miles to the hospital, there's going to be an urgent care in another location. Usually, when I see it, in every, actually in every case, is I'll see a, an emergency room effectively in the domain of another hospital. Exactly. Yeah. Okay? Because they're basically trying to get them to reroute it. And the idea then, and eventually that patient, if they do need to, you know, an admission, uh, they literally have to be transported by ambulance to the main hospital. Because those have generally beds are only good for you know like t- under twenty four hours, mm-hmm. um, and it becomes much more of a marketing play. And yet they're putting you know sometimes tens of millions of dollars to create these freestanding emergency rooms. So so everything has been built, you know, to to feed the hospital system. True, and it's the largest consumer of all healthcare dollars is the hospital system. Right, and the reality is that it hasn't been done. Uh, really to provide, you know, the most optimum care uh, at the best prices. So yeah. I would argue that that those emergency rooms are, are really much more to, to generate more hospital admissions than it is to provide much better care. Well, I, I, I don't at all disagree with that, but I think there's, a, there's another side to that. And that is that many of these freestanding emergency rooms, even though they are connected um, administratively with a, with a local hospital, do provide the ability to, because of the distance to the hospital itself and that ER, they provide the ability to stabilize an individual, an automobile accident or or a, a, a accident on, in a farm or something like that, stabilize that individual and then transport. Um, and it's almost like, a, in, in many ways, the freestanding ER becomes a little bit like a field hospital in some respects. And I think that that, that does serve an advantage to the population in that area that there is something immediately available. So, Well, one of the things I'm also noticing, and, and this maybe it's a good point, is that I've seen some of these um, these emergency departments, emergency rooms being built in communities that are growing. Yes. And in, at least in one location I'm aware of, now they're going to build a hospital around it because there's now enough population there. That's a very interesting move. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our focus on on the primary care and even the specialists, uh, there's not a lot of help there. No. Um, and, uh, and we are seeing, I think, much more of the consumerization because there's no way anyone can go into a an average, I'll go average, medical office building and tell me it's designed for consumers. It isn't. It's, it's designed for... Um, first of all, the physician. Yeah, it's definitely and second, it, it, commercialization. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like an assembly line environment, mm-hmm. and the patient's going in there, and they're getting corralled into one office or another. 
And I don't see, uh, particularly baby boomers that have been used to having everything customized for them or for us, um, living in that environment. So no. uh, as they interact more, and the baby boomers today are between uh, like 56 and 73 or 74, um, they're still very healthy. They're very young. Uh, certainly you. raise their parents. Uh, and they're very active. So they're not going to go up and put up with the uh, what their parents and grandparents put up with. And, and, you know, one of the other opportunities is that patients are much more educated, even if you sort of blame or credit, you know, Dr. Google for it. Or, or WebMD. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the patients are coming in. So I think that, that now we're going to, we have started to see it, and we're starting to see uh, senior care centers now being uh, built that are designed literally for the Medicare population um, that are that are bringing in multiple doctors most of the time under a group practice or a corporate practice of medicine. Right. But the whole trend is moving. Um, and the challenge for that goes back to those doctors that we talked about at the beginning that are independent, that are that are sort of on their own. Um, and now you have, in some cases, um, I think of all the doctors in that survey about Eight, for example, seven percent of the doctors work for a venture capital firm or, or private equity firms. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big number. It is. Okay, so if that number translates to the rest of the uh, of of the population of doctors, you're talking about seventy thousand doctors are working in companies that are owned by private equity. So that that brings up an in interesting question. A little bit aside from our discussion, but. We both know that uh, you know investments uh, by private equity and and venture capital have a vintage period. Uh, how do you foresee that happening when now their investments are are at at maturity and and uh, they're coming out? What what do you think might happen there? Well, that's a really interesting twist of the conversation. But one of the things that we've noticed in the last twelve months is we've seen uh, at least seven public com companies go public. Right. Um, that were funded by both private equity or venture capital, eventually then private equity, um, with tremendously high valuation. So there is a clear trend for corporate practice, what I'm going to call corporate practice in medicine. Um, and I think the number is going to grow. Um, there are some challenges, as you talked about, vintage years, um, and particularly, you know, the ones that were, you know, five to seven years old right. when the pandemic hit. Now, for example, there are many specialists that have not recovered because of the number that we talked about, the 7% drop in Medicare. Right. Uh, I don't know the breakdown, but a lot of that is, is specialist. Right. Um, so they have not recovered. So they've had to make changes. And the other thing that is really interesting is that in most cases, not in all cases, many of these deals um, are, are high-end specialists. Uh, and high-end specialists are particularly vulnerable to the continuing growth of managed care companies. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and even if you go back to companies like United Healthcare, I think their their optimum is like something like fourteen billion dollars of revenue. That's a that's a physician group right. inside an insurance company. Right. Right. Um, and then you've got other companies like Humana, for example, that I don't think I've seen their numbers exactly, but the numbers got to be four to six billion dollars in revenue just from the medical group again inside the insurance company. Um, so that trend is going to continue to grow. Um, and, and again, the negative side of that for those independent physicians is they're getting pressure on all sides. We've, again, we've talked about the, the revenue reimbursement. Now we're talking about organizations that are being designed under that revenue you know, schema 
right? Uh, or are focusing on managed care, which is dramatically different, you know, uh, structure From and a, compensation than a right. fee-for-service environment, which right. we talked about before, right? Where you're getting capitation, you're getting shared risk, where you're getting full risk. Uh, that allows the, a sophisticated physician group uh, to optimize their their, their well, investments. That, that becomes a business management issue at that point, not uh, not a medical practice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. So I I think we've scratched the surface on uh, on sort of the impact that real estate is having in uh, in in healthcare. Yeah, and in particular the primary care physician and sort of the specialty physicians, and I think we've begun to discuss uh, sort of an emerging model that we're seeing in multiple places that maybe isn't crystallized to the population at large and probably isn't really crystallized to physicians at large. No, I agree. I think one of the things, too, we did not discuss relative to the hospitals and the location of them is the certif uh, certificate of need that, you know, a few states still are clinging to. And, uh, you know, maybe a, a reason why these, these uh, local not even regional, but local clinics are popping up simply because that's a way to get around that certificate of need and, and so on. The, even the standalone ER is a way to get around it. So uh, we may uh, throw that into the mix for next week. No, it'll be it'll be really interesting because in Florida, the certificate of need was eliminated. Yes. Um, and uh, that is going to be just before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a tremendous amount of changes because you're going to have Hospitals that were, for the most part, in in coastal communities that uh, that uh, did suffered some uh, as people went into the suburbs and the suburbs grew. Right. Now they went back to a little bit to the back to the the city cores. Now they're going back to the suburbs. And what happens is, and you also have uh, socioeconomic changes. So communities that were very uh, economically uh, 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 successful, let's call it. Uh, over time, it has changed, mm -hmm. uh, and and those communities may be under stress uh, economically. So you have a lot more Medicaid, for example. Right. By the way, speaking of Medicaid, another report just crossed my desk that said that we had a record number of people in Medicaid um, last year, yeah. and eighty million people are now in Medicaid, so, yeah. um, which is a you know Surprise. thirteen fourteen million people joined it yeah. uh, during the number. pandemic. Really surprising. So number. I think we we will stop here and we'll continue the subject in our our next uh, podcast. We want to thank everyone for listening yep. and the great comments that we get from literally all over the world, as far as uh, Tokyo and Singapore. So yeah, yeah, you may be an influencer, Carl. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Till next time. This is Noah Guillama. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.